Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and as we turn now to this book of Ecclesiastes for the first time in this new series, uh, we do pray that you would help me and help us all as we grapple with this great book. Uh, We pray that even as we consider these things, that you would shape our hearts and our minds and our expectations and deepen our faith in Christ and our hope in him. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Well, this morning we are kicking off this new sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you perhaps know, this book is rather different. I don't know if you've heard preached on before, but even if you've ever just read it yourself, then it will probably have left you feeling somewhat perplexed. And yet there is a sense in which this is kind of the point of the whole book. David Gibson sums it up very helpfully for us in the introduction to his commentary on Ecclesiastes. He says, part of the brilliance of Ecclesiastes is that it teaches us that life often slips through our fingers and eludes our comprehension by being itself elusive and perplexing. Is there a better way to explain how life can leave you scratching your head than by writing a book that leaves you doing the same? The message of the book is mirrored in the effect of the book. So as we turn this morning to this brilliant masterpiece of wisdom literature, the first thing we should ask, of course, is who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? And the opening line of the book points us in the direction of Solomon, doesn't it? The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Then in verse 12, he refers to himself as king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then in verse 16, he says, I have acquired great wisdom. And all of these things point us in the direction that this is a book written by Solomon. And yet even the identity of the author leaves us a little perplexed, doesn't it? There are other verses later in the book which would lead us to think that maybe this is not actually Solomon who is writing this. Rather someone writing in the persona of Solomon. And he's rather elusive, isn't he? In that he never actually tells us his name. He refers to himself instead as Koheleth in the Hebrew. Uh, Literally, it means someone who speaks to a gathering. That's why uh, in English translations often uh, he's referred to as the teacher or the, the preacher. Whoever this writer is, Solomon or someone else, this is a man who speaks to a gathering 
of people. He preaches to them. He teaches them certain things. And as we come to this book of his, uh, we get to listen in on one of his lessons. And so the next thing we should ask is, well, what is this teacher's subject matter? In other words, uh, when he gathers his people together to teach them, what will his topic be? Is he a maths teacher? Is he a geography teacher? Is he a physics teacher? What subject is he going to teach about? Well, he, he sums up his subject with this little phrase that is going to appear literally dozens of times throughout the book. The phrase is, under the sun. That is his topic for us, under the sun. It appears twice, doesn't it, in the verses we're looking at this morning, at the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 9. What does this phrase, under the sun, mean? Well, it refers to life here on earth in this fallen creation. Life here on earth in this fallen creation. And whenever you see that phrase, under the sun, in this book of Ecclesiastes, that is what you should think. This is the, the subject of the teacher. Life here on earth in this fallen creation. And some people push that a little further, and they say that when the teacher uh, says about life under the sun, he means rather life here on earth in this fallen creation if you reject God. But I think that's pushing things a little too far. I think he, he simply wants us to know what life is like here on earth in this fallen creation, whoever you are, Christian or non-Christian, atheist or agnostic. What is life like under the sun? And if that is his topic, his subject, we might ask next, what is his outlook on that? Every teacher has a, an outlook, don't they, on their subject. Uh, they have a certain approach, a certain mindset, a certain worldview, which shapes the way that they view their topic, the way that they teach their subject. And so we want to say to the teacher, well, yes, your topic is under the sun, but what is your outlook on that? What is the worldview through which you see life here on earth in this fallen creation? And again, there's a particular word that the teacher uses time and time again to sum up his worldview, if you like, the way that he looks at his topic. It's the word in the ESV which is translated vanity. Vanity. The teacher shares his outlook there in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And so we need to know what he means by that word. Now, a lot of translations say it means meaningless. But I don't think that's quite what the preacher wants us to 
think as we study his book that life here on earth is just meaningless, pointless. Now, as we'll see, he does believe in meaning. And so what does that word vanity mean if it's not meaninglessness? Well, in the original, it's the word breath or, or mist. That's the kind of idea. Life is a breath. Life is a, a mist. And that word carries with it a, a couple of connotations we should have in mind. Firstly, that life is fleeting. Life is fleeting. If you're outside on a, a cold day and you breathe out, you can see your breath before your face. But you don't see it for very long, do you? Uh, very quickly, it just disappears before your very eyes. And the teacher is saying, life here on earth, in this fallen creation, is like that. It is over so quickly. Life is short. It's a bit of a, a cliche, isn't it? But it's so true. Life passes us by so quickly. Psalm 144 says, man is like a breath. It's the same word as Ecclesiastes uses. His days are like a passing shadow. Life is fleeting. But also, life is elusive. And imagine again that you're outside on a, a cold day and you breathe out and you see your breath in, in front of your face. And in those couple of seconds before it disappears, you then try and grasp hold of it with your hand. You try and capture it. You try and grab hold of it and keep it. And of course, it's impossible, isn't it? It's elusive. It slips through your fingers. And life, says the teacher, is like that. There are things in life that we want to grab hold of. And we want to keep them forever. That job or that possession or that relationship or that experience. But these things are elusive. They slip through our fingers. We can't hold on to them. And they remain tantalizingly out of our reach. Imagine that you're out for a walk one evening and you, you see a beautiful sunset. The most beautiful that you've ever seen. And you stop and you look at it and... You're amazed by its magnificence. And what do you do? Well, probably, immediately, you reach for your phone, don't you? And you take a photograph, quickly. Because you know that this experience is going to be gone in just a, a few minutes. That's why cameras were invented, isn't it, deep down? Because life is elusive. A time with loved ones. Your wedding day. Family gatherings, beautiful sunsets. We enjoy them while they last, don't we? And yet they will all slip through our fingers before very long. And so when those things happen, we, we make sure, don't we, someone's got a camera out for all of those things. Someone get a camera. And we say to the person holding the camera, make sure you capture this. It's a telling phrase, isn't it? Make sure you capture this. And yet the reality is, of course, you can't really capture it. Because life is elusive. You can't capture those things any more than you can capture the breath in front of your face. And that is what Ecclesiastes is all about. The teacher wants to teach us about life 
here on earth, in this fallen creation. And his outlook is this. It is fleeting and it is elusive. That's what the teacher wants us to to think about as we read and study his book together. He wants us to get us thinking about these things. And to get us thinking, he asks us a question in verse 3. He's inviting us into his lesson. And he's getting us to take part. He wants this to be somewhat interactive. And he's saying we need to, to use our brains here as we grapple with these things. And he says to us, let me ask you a question to get the lesson started. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now that word for gain literally means a profit. And you know what a profit is, don't you? It's what's left over when all the work's done and all the dues are paid. And the teacher is asking us, when a person gets to the end of their life and all their work is done and all of their dues are paid, what is left over? What profit is there under the sun? And his answer, as you've probably guessed, is nothing. Absolutely nothing, because life is fleeting and life is elusive. And we can work hard throughout our life, but under the sun, under the sun, life here on earth in this fallen creation, there is no profit to be had. And I wonder, would you agree with that outlook on life? At first, it sounds quite grim, doesn't it? Well, hear the teacher out. And in the next few verses, the preacher, the teacher, is, is first of all going to demonstrate the truth of that outlook. And then he's going to apply that outlook. So let's see how he, he does that. First of all, in verses 4 to 7, the preacher demonstrates the truth of his outlook by pointing us to the cyclical nature of creation. The cyclical nature of creation. That's verses 4 to 7. He gives us four examples of this, four aspects of life in which we see a cycle taking place. And the first is the coming and going of successive generations. There in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I think it's probably true, isn't it, that every generation, every generation likes to think that the human race really arrived with their generation. All those other generations that went before us, they, they never really understood things like we do. We've got the right view of things. And any generation that comes after us, they're going to drop the ball. Only if, if, if only every generation believed what my generation believes and thought like my generation thinks and behaved like my generation behaves and voted like my generation votes, then things would work properly. We think that the human race arrived with our generation the, human, uh, the, the teacher doesn't buy that outlook on the human race. He says the human race will never arrive with a particular generation. A generation will come, and then it will go, and it will be followed by another, and then another, and then another. And there is, you see, this cyclical nature to the coming and the going of the successive generations. The human race here under the sun never really arrives. It comes and it goes. And then secondly, this cyclical nature of creation is seen in regards to the sun. The sun rises and the sun goes down. 
and hastens, hastens to the place where it rises. So the, the sun never really arrives, does it? There's never going to be a morning when the, the sun thinks to itself, do you know, I, I rose so well this morning that I never need to do that again. I got it just right this morning. That latest sunrise was just so profitable. There was so much gain to be had from it that, that I never need to do that again. I can just put my feet up now. Now, the sun just keeps on going, doesn't it, in this cyclical nature of creation. And likewise, the wind just keeps on going and keeps on blowing, doesn't it? The wind blows to the south, goes round to the north, round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. The wind will never blow itself out. Day after day, it just keeps on going round and round again. And likewise, fourthly, the water cycle. All the streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. And of course, when the water gets into the sea, uh, the sun shines on it, and then through evaporation and condensation, clouds are formed in the sky, and then the rain falls on the land, the water gets into the streams, and the streams flow into the sea once again, and the cycle continues. There will never be a day when the sea says to the stream, do you know I've had quite enough water, thank you very much. No, the cycle just continues, doesn't it, perpetually. And the teacher wants us to sit up and take notice of this cyclical nature of creation. This is how it all works. And if I could put it like this, creation never arrives. No, it rotates according to these God-given cycles again and again and again. Generations are born, generations die. The sun rises and the sun sets. The wind blows and then tomorrow it blows some more. The water falls from the sky, enters the stream, flows into the sea, and then it does it all over again. And what the teacher is getting us to consider is this, if I can put it bluntly. Why on earth do human beings arrive on earth and they think that they're going to be the exception to the rule? It is all delusional, isn't it? All of creation, look around you, all of creation is ticking over, following these God-ordained cycles. And then a human being is born and grows, grows up and thinks to themselves, well, I can beat the system. If I throw my all into life, if I work hard, if I cram enough experiences and enough pleasure into my life, I can beat the system. I can really arrive. I can make a profit here. And when all my work is done and all my dues are paid, I will have gain. That's the outlook of the human being in his fallen condition, isn't it? And the teacher says, no, you won't have gain at the end of it all. Because that's not what life is like under the sun. That's not how the creation, of which you're just a, a tiny part, has been designed. Nothing arrives here. Things come and things go. And so will you. So will you. Ian Proven hits the nail on the head when he says this. He says, the massive reality of creation thus critiques the aspirations of all those tiny mortal beings who stand within creation as transient creatures. There is no reason to assume that individuals should gain from their toil when creation as a whole does not. And this is why life is fleeting and elusive, isn't it? It's because of this, this cyclical nature 
of creation. Under the sun, things come and things go, but nothing ever really arrives. And having demonstrated, therefore, the the truth of his outlook in verses 4 to 7, the teacher now is going to apply it to real life. Given that this is what life is like here on earth in this fallen creation, what is it like to live in that kind of world? Well, just very, very briefly, notice three things the teacher has to say about it. Firstly, nothing here really satisfies. Nothing here really satisfies. And since we live in this coming and going yet never really arriving world, satisfaction in anything here is elusive, isn't it? That's what verse 8 is getting at. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It's true, isn't it? Satisfaction is just so elusive. You go on your dream holiday, whatever that may be, and yet after two weeks, you're just back in the office again. Or you go out and you have a beautiful meal at a fine restaurant, and it's delicious, but then just a few hours later, you're hungry once again. Or you go to a brilliant concert and you you hear your favorite composer or your favorite band and it's great while it lasts. And yet after the final note, the music just falls silent. It came and it went and it was good while it lasted, but nothing here really satisfies. And as well as that, nothing here is really new. Nothing here is really new. We get excited by things that claim to be new, don't we? When a, a new gadget is released, people queue around the block to get their hands on one. And yet it's never really new. It's just an updated way of doing an old thing. We live in this, this cyclical nature of creation where, where things come and things go over and over again. And, and there's nothing really new in that system. And so the teacher says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Of course, the teacher is not saying that the human race cannot advance and the human race cannot develop and invent things. But what he is saying is that underneath all of that human progress, we're only coming up with an updated way of doing an old thing. The same old human desires and hopes and fears and aspirations just regurgitated in new packaging year after year. And smoke signals and superfast broadband may look very, very different to us, but they're both on this same old continuum, aren't they, of the human desire to communicate with one another. We love the idea of something really new, but actually, says the teacher, there's nothing that is really new under the sun. The French have a good way of putting it, don't they? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Nothing here is really new. And thirdly and finally, nothing here really lasts. Nothing here really lasts. Again, we love the idea, don't we, that we can create a legacy. We can build something that really will last. But it is a bit like building a sandcastle on a beach, which might look good for a while, But sooner or later, the tide is going to come and wash it away. And the next morning, no one on that beach will have any notion that you were ever there. 
because all of your work has been washed away. And so the teacher says there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And sometimes people say, well, even after I'm dead, my legacy is going to live on through my children. And of course, to a certain extent, that is true. But just give it a couple of generations, and actually no one is going to remember any of us. After all, how many of us here this morning know what our great-grandfather was called? Never mind what they did in their whole life. See, nothing here really lasts. And so here's your first lesson from the teacher. Let's sum it up in one statement covering what we've looked at so far. The teacher says, life here on earth in this fallen creation under the sun is fleeting and elusive and it is so because of the cyclical nature of creation which means that nothing here really satisfies nothing here is really new and nothing here really lasts i wonder what do you make of all of that what do you make of the teacher's outlook on life under the sun And as we close, I want to suggest to you that there are three ways in which you can respond to what the teacher is saying to us here. And the first response is that you can be depressed as you consider these things. You can be depressed. And you can think to yourself, well, if that is what life is like, then why bother? I'm just going to give up. There's no point. I may as well kill myself if there's nothing in this world that is ever going to truly satisfy me. And if we've seen it all before and and nothing I do will ever last, why bother with life? That's one way to respond to what the teacher is saying. I hope it's not the way you'll respond, but you can be depressed at these things, can't you? And secondly, you can be defiant. And so you can respond by saying to the teacher, I don't believe a word of what you're saying about life here under the sun. I believe that in the things of this world, I can find true satisfaction. And there will be new things always to excite me. And I can achieve things in life that will truly last. I will make a gain. You can be defiant against what the teacher is saying. And yet, truth be told, that is a delusional way to live life. David Gibson says that living that way is like playing a big game of let's pretend with your life. He says, let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or emigrate to the sun, we won't experience the humdrum tedium of life. Let's pretend that if we move house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty nappies and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week we'll be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side 
to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. It's delusional, isn't it, to live in defiance of what the teacher is saying to us. That approach will not get us anywhere. So you can be depressed or you can be defiant. But the teacher doesn't want you to go down either of those avenues as you listen to his teaching. And instead, he wants you to be hopeful. He wants you to be hopeful. That is the third and final and the correct response to this teacher's teaching. You can be hopeful. Because if he is right in saying that there is nothing under the sun, nothing here on earth in this fallen world which will truly satisfy us, or which is truly new, or will truly last, then the right response is to ask, well, where do I find all of those things if they're not here? In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. And as you listen to the teacher, you can be hopeful because that other world is real. That other world is everything that we wish this world was, but isn't. And you see, nothing here really satisfies us. But in the other world, in the other world, there is true satisfaction. Nothing here is really new. And in the other world, it's all new. It's all new. Revelation 21 verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Nothing here really lasts. And the other world is eternal. Forever and ever. And you see, this is what the teacher wants us all to recognize. As he teaches us in his unique, compelling way. He's getting us to look at what life is really like under the sun. And he wants us to realize that it is futile to place your hopes in this world. And what this world has to offer. Because this world will always disappoint you. And the reason it disappoints you is because you were made for another world. You were made for another world. And as we close, let me say this briefly. If you know Jesus Christ, you know the way there. You know the way there, which is through faith in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the, the wisdom of the teacher who wrote this great book of Ecclesiastes. And what a great thing it is to be able to listen in on what he has to teach us. And we thank you for his frank and honest assessment of what life is like here on earth in this fallen creation. It is so fleeting and it's so elusive. And the creation around us turns through its natural rotations. Things come and things go so quickly. And so help us to see that this is the reality of what life is like here. Because we live in, in this world, nothing here can really satisfy us. Nothing here is really new. 
and nothing here really lasts. And it helps us to see that we were made for another world. We were made for a new creation, which one day, if we're in Christ, we will come to inhabit a place where all things are made new, a place where all things will last forever, a place where we will be satisfied for all eternity because we will be with Christ. We praise you for this great hope and we ask all of these things in our Saviour's name. Amen.